There's three wise men and, uh, some, and a camel or two. There's a camel in this one. There you go. Uh, there's, um, there's a donkey. Now, I don't know where the donkey comes from in the nativity story. Anybody? No? Okay. And, um, and there's always a cow. Uh, I don't know where that comes from. It's, and it's always, a, a, I noticed there was always a Jersey cow. Uh, this was long before the island of Jersey was discovered. But, uh, but there you go. It's, uh, oh, there's some shepherds, uh, which are in the story. Uh, some sheep. Um, uh, and there's a magical star, which is a good thing, because uh, there was a magical star in the story. So I've got another one here. Here's another one. So this one has no camel, uh, there's no angels, and there's only one wise man that I can see, but maybe you can, uh, maybe you can spot stuff I can't. I think there's a donkey there somewhere, and still a cow. So the thing about Christmas is that this is a cliche. This is what we see. If you go down the town hall, I haven't been down there, but there's usually a little nativity scene that, uh, that copies this. And uh, everywhere you go, in every supermarket, uh, there's, there's pictures that look very much like this. So the typical Christmas message is typically uh, an anti-cliche message. Um, and in fact, I've been to so many Christmas messages over my life that uh, the anti-cliche message has almost become a cliche in itself. Um, it got me thinking, what does, uh, what does a person who doesn't go to church think about this, uh, about this, uh, about this message in Christmas? Well, um, there's a lot of this message that's actually quite believable. So there's uh, the two newlyweds. Um, they probably travel there on a donkey, so maybe. Uh, the young woman's heavily pregnant. Um, she actually became pregnant before she married her husband, and whoever has heard of that, uh, that's never heard of before, has it? Uh, all the hotels are full. Um, they have to rough it in a stable. Uh, she gives birth to a little baby boy right there in the stable, and there are some... Uh, Wealthy travellers, these are the three wise men and some shepherds nearby, and they're probably excited about the baby. They come and have a look. So it's all kind of, all kind of fits so far. Um, it's quite plausible. But then there are a few extra bits that begin to look a bit strange, aren't they? For a start, um, the angels who appeared to the, uh, to the shepherds. Where did they come from? Really, angels? Um, and then the three wise men are okay. There weren't actually three of them, incidentally, in the, in the original story. Um, uh, there, were, there were people called magi. Magi is a word that begins with magicians. Um, in, elsewhere in the New Testament, um, the word magi is translated as sorcerer. So um, we don't like calling them three sorcerers. We call them three wise men. And the only reason why we say the three of them is because they had three different types of gifts. Um, the, the, the frankincense and the... And the Gold and the myrrh, yeah. Um, and perhaps one gift each. But they were there. But they were led there by uh, a magic star. Now, I've never worked this out. Um, if it is a star, you know, it's very difficult to follow a star to a specific house, isn't it? So um, it was like some kind of a guiding light. It was quite, uh, quite supernatural. So if you're not a church person, how do you explain that? Well, I suppose you say, well, okay, well, some person wrote this believable story and then over the years, these extra little bits have been added. Um, they're kind of like embellishments to the story. And it's a good story. 
Let's make it clear, though. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there really was a star that, that led these, uh, these, these men, uh, these wealthy men, to give gifts to the son Jesus, to Jesus, and there were really, um, there were really angels that told the uh, shepherds to go and see the baby Jesus in the stable. But as Christians, we don't usually worry too much about it because there is one really supernatural thing in this story that's just beyond any of these little scale things. There's one really big thing that this, that this, that this cliche is, in fact, a, makes this cliche a turning point in the history of humankind. The big thing that Christians believe that this story is about this little baby is, in fact, the Son of God. So I'm having trouble seeing my notes here. If I put my glasses on, I can't see you. If I put them on, I can't I can see the notes. <laughs> so if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is the point at which you probably switch off, because this is too big a supernatural fact, isn't it? That this little baby you see in the picture, I'll go back to the original one, is the Son of God. Think of, first of all, what it means to, be, to say the Son of God. Now, if you say the son of a cat, you know the son of the cat is a cat. If you make something up, the son of a caterpillar is going to be a caterpillar. The son of two people, we know, because we've seen enough times, turns out to be another person, a little person. Well, the son of God is God himself. How can a person also be God? The first thing that comes to my mind is just how does a person fit God into him or her? How does that work? That's what's so compelling about this title, the Son of God. I know just how limited I am as a person. I can barely remember my own phone number. And how does a human expand his or her capabilities in order to also be God? If you are a person who's also God... How do you remember all the stuff that you're supposed to know if you're God? How do you understand all those things that God is supposed to be able to understand? And if you have all the power of God, how do you restrain yourself sufficiently so to people you actually still appear human? Well, they're just big questions. I've got no idea. I'm, I'm asking them. I, I don't actually know. We use the term son of God because it kind of reflects our astonishment at this thing. But the Bible actually mostly refers to the little baby and, 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 and Jesus as the son of man. And one of the reasons is because it's looking at this from God's perspective. It's asking the question in reverse. We're thinking, you know, um, I know I'm small. You know, how does God fit into me? Um, well, it's asking how God, the Bible knows God is very big. How does God shrink himself into this uh, human being? This is what Christians mean by the incarnation. And uh, look, I've read a lot of uh, what theologians said about incarnation, and it hasn't enlightened me at all. Um, there are a few things they can say, but it's, it, it's a mystery. Indeed, you could argue that uh, for the first three, four, five centuries of, of Christianity... They, they debated this. This was a big debating point. I've got it here. Um, the Nicene Creed. Um, this isn't the whole Nicene Creed. This is just a third of it. 
And uh, all this is about trying to define how God, how God, how Jesus can be both God and man at the same time. It says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. Now, this was written in 325 AD by the early church fathers. There were about 300 of them got together to try and deal with all the tangents that were people going through to try and explain how God can be a man and how man can be God at the same time. It doesn't really explain it, incidentally. All it really does is take all the arguments of people together and try and stop you from escaping and going on a big tangent. It's like someone's rushed around and closed all the doors of the stable to try and keep the horse in. The thing is that the nativity scene with its donkey, I don't know if I've got an, oh yeah, but it's don- they're not in this one, but it's a nice picture, with its donkey and its angels and its three wise men, they contain a fact of just cosmic scale. It's not something you can fully grasp any more than you can grasp how, uh, how many stars there are in the sky or uh, how big is the universe or you know, the distance to the nearest galaxy. One, one thing I, I try to explain, I talk about the hands of the baby Jesus. It's a wonderful feeling, isn't it, when you feel a baby's hand, you put your index finger in their little fingers and they grab your hand, it just, oh, yeah, it just melts, <laughs> and it's just fantastic. Well, think of the hands of God, now I'm going to wax lyrical a bit, think of the hands of God, God once lifted his hands and summoned the entire universe into existence. God was once in the Garden of Eden and he reached down into the mud and he picked up some clay and out of the clay he shaped the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, and brought them into existence. God once uh, shook his fist over Egypt and every firstborn son in the country died. God once... um, waved his hands over the Red Sea and it parted and two million former slaves walked across an an open sea on dry land. God once, uh, 850 years later, God once guided the hands of a prophet called Malachi to write down some of the Bible so that we could read it today and in there he prophesied the coming of the Son of God. So God's hands have repeatedly lifted up empires and then overnight just brought them back down again what the hands of God cannot do now God's mighty hands and the hands of this little baby that you see in the stable 2,000 years ago are the same hands it's hard to grasp I want to make a few observations about this little baby then I mean, you would ex- uh, the Jews, the local Jewish population, they were, expecting, uh, they were expecting a king. They wanted a king to come in and take over Israel and restore it to greatness so that it could be a great nation once again. They were expecting a king to be born into wealth, uh, born into a royal family, born into power, uh, born into privilege. And this 
is how the Son of God is born. By today's standards, his parents were very poor. His, um, his mother and his stepfather, they were middle classish. I mean, uh, uh, he was a blue collar worker. Uh, his parents weren't Roman aristocracy, they weren't part of the elite, they weren't influential, they were not connected. They were just ordinary, hard-working people. They were subject to the same uh, government laws, the same taxes, the same daily challenges as everyone else. Just a note here, Jesus' parents were not lucky people. Lucky people turn up to the hotel and the hotel owner says, oh, you know, I've just had a cancellation. You're in luck. You've got a room. They weren't lucky. They were unlucky people. There's a lot of bad luck in this picture. This young married couple was subject to the same misfortunes and bad luck as you and I are subject to today. When God sent his only son to live as a man amongst us, he provided his son with no special advantages, nor with any marked disadvantages, as I suppose. He was just one of us. So why did God send his only son to live as a man among us? To answer that question, we have, to, we have uh, the benefit of hindsight. Um, and I'll just briefly go through the story. I'll make it as short as I can. I mean, the baby Jesus here, he grew up and he lived a godly life. And that's what he did expect a, a God who is man to live. You'd expect him to live a godly life. Um, around the age of 33, I think it was said before, um, uh, Jesus had opponents and they convicted him before the courts on trumped-up charges, and he was condemned to death. He was whipped, and he was beaten. And then he was nailed to a wooden cross on which he suffered alongside two, uh, two other convicts. And, th- and he died, passed away. Um, and that uh, late afternoon, some of his Jesus followers took his body down from the cross, and they dressed it in grave clothes, and they laid uh, this broken, whipped corpse in a tomb, and it was the start of a three-day um, religious festival, so it was a long weekend. So to deter grave robbers from, uh, from stealing the body or interfering with the body, they, um, they rolled a big heavy stone over the front of the tomb. Uh, so the weekend passed. Three days later, they return to the tomb and they find it empty. At first, Jesus' followers thought that someone had interfered with the body. But they soon discovered that Jesus had simply got up and walked out of the tomb. No longer dead. Jesus was alive. And for the following six weeks, Jesus met with all his former colleagues. He cooked them breakfast. He spoke to each one of them. Not just his colleagues, it says, talks about the road to Emmaus where he met two strangers who knew about him and he explained himself to them. Um, they thought he was just a, a normal person. The Bible says that 500 witnesses confirmed that Jesus is back from the dead. And it doesn't say that until, uh, in a way to say there was a lot. It's saying there's 500, go ask them. Don't believe me, go ask them. So why? John 3.16, the most uh, popular verse in the Bible, apparently. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, 
I talked earlier about the bigger than human things that God's hands can do. Well, there is something else that God's, that the Son of God can do, starting with Himself. The Son of God can bring dead people back to life. Now, that's hard to, that's hard to grasp. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Because God loves us, He wants to give us life. And this is the message of Christmas. This is that one big thing that's so, that's so big, it supersedes all those other trivial cliche things in the picture. The truth is that God loves us and that He loves us so much that He sent His only Son to live among us as one of us. For those who choose to believe in God's Son, God offers to share the resurrected life of His Son with them. Let me try and put that another way. In John 3.16, God promises that if you turn to Him, God is offering to put the resurrected life of His Son into you. This new life is built on the love that God has for every person. It is a life connected, as it should be, to the living God. It is a life that surpasses death, a life based on truth and light, it's a life that Jesus demonstrated by rising from the dead. It's a life that is nourished by God's own words. Indeed, it's a full life that God intended for us to live. It's a very resurrected life of Christ within us. So when you see the Christmas scene, what do you see? As much a cliche as it is, the nativity scene is God's invitation to put your trust in Him and receive this new life that He has for each one of us. Now, this is where a speaker would normally try and point out how miserable your life is and how, uh, how you need to turn to God and you know, find a new life in Christ. I have difficulty there because my life is so good. <laughs> um, and yet, it's as clear as day. I still need... God in my life, and I still need this life that Christ has to offer. And it's a life that Christ has to offer each one of us, just as we believe in Him. So can I invite you again this morning to look past the cliche and see a God who loves us and who sent His only Son into this world at great cost to Himself, so that those who believe in Him can be given a new life in Jesus our Saviour. Let's pray. Loving God, we just uh, thank you this morning for this time of year. And uh, there's a lot of story and there's a lot of uh, cliche and a lot of trivial things going on at Christmas, but there's this one very big fact, that you love us, that you became one of us.